Christian, for the most part, is the word What does it mean? What does it look like to be blessed? When I say that, maybe an, an image of happiness or, or joy comes to mind. Maybe a vision of the easy life is what comes before you. Uh, work is good. Relationships are, are going well. Maybe it's an idea of health. A time when your days weren't You know, for many of us, uh, being blessed or, or, or blessing is defined by the, uh, the good life, the American dream. For Abraham, the famous patriarch of Israel, this is what happened. God had made a promise to Abraham, a promise that included a, a land to dwell in, the protection of the Lord himself, and a family that would grow into a a nation declared blessed by the Father. That's what blessing looked like for him. And what's so astounding about being blessed by God is how otherworldly that is. If you've been a Christian for some time, maybe you've overlooked this fact or just gotten used to it. Uh, but normally, the way our world works is that the people at the uh, top of the pyramid get all the attention, not the people at the bottom. Uh, the normal way of life, even here in the 21st century, uh, is that we're supposed to seek to, uh, to, to butter up the bottom. It's the other way around. It should be shocking to us, just as it would have been absolutely shocking to those in the first century setting here, that God would care anything about where they get that from? Uh, certainly the surrounding nations in the Old Testament did not have that idea of a God blessing his people. Uh, we know for a fact that Christians in the first century did not get it from the Greco-Roman culture. And no one spoke of, of Zeus blessing his people out of grace and mercy. No. Instead, it was a world of angry gods demanding that you serve them, that you find ways to appease them so that nothing bad would happen to you. Being blessed by God was not even a concept. And so when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to this idea of a God who loves his people, who dies for them, not because they earned it, but out of grace and mercy, well, that changes everything. So here's what's so astounding. This picture of God blessing his people, this, this idea of, of the king who has come not to be served, but, but to serve, to be a, a blessing for his people, it's not even just a New Testament idea. It's not just from a, a, a sermon or, or, or one singular teaching of Jesus, but it's all over the scripture. examples of that than what we're going to see this morning in the epistle to the Hebrews, starting in chapter 7. I would invite you to turn you there. This is a crucial chapter. 
possible to understand the entire book of Hebrews. This is absolutely essential if we're going to get what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. Again, Hebrews and the New Testament, it's a messy Bible in front of you if you read it. Paralysis flip to chapter 7. We're going to start that same time. We're going to start with some interesting names. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the king and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues the king of Salem. So we begin with answering this question, who is with a funny name, to be sure, and yet he's going to be very important for us understanding the rest of Hebrews, so let's make sure we understand his audience. Uh, we are first introduced to Melchizedek way back in Genesis chapter 14. The setting there is right after a battle in which Abram, as he's named at the time, uh, rescues Lot and his people from some other interesting kings, Chedorlaomer king of Elam, who, alongside several other of the surrounding nations, sought to fight against, even to destroy, to annihilate God's people. Well, Abram is successful in repelling and resisting and defeating these enemies, and on his way back from the battle, he is met by none other than Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere, seemingly. He brings bread and wine to Abram in a little ceremony of sorts of how God provides for his people, uh, perhaps even foreshadowing. Bread and wine is communion. Next, we read in Genesis that Melchizedek blesses Abram, and Abram responds to this blessing by giving a, a tithe. Normally, we think of that as, as, as 10%. In this case, 10% of the best oils of the battle, you know, the, the thing that he looted from these evil kings that had been defeated, and, and he takes that and he gives it to Melchizedek. And that's where we always see the, uh, the next time this mysterious figure shows up is in Psalm 110, which we've actually read a few times in Hebrews up to this point. And after that, the only other Hebrews, we read a little bit more about him. Uh, his name has a unique as most Hebrew and Greek names do. Uh, that first part, the melt, refers to being a king. And Zedek is the common Hebrew word for righteousness. So Melchizedek is the, he is the king of righteousness. That's who he is. He embodies what he is. 
And what's more, we're told he's also called the king of bit of a, a ring to you, you might recognize that it's part of the city of Nineveh. Salem in Hebrew refers to peace. Uh, kind of like today, we would uh, speak with a Arabic speaker, Salam, and peace. So Melchizedek then is the king of righteousness and he is the, the king of peace. And what's more, as if that were not enough, uh, both here and back in Genesis, we find that he's not only a king, but he's also a priest. And that may not seem so odd to us. We don't know how those things work, but back in those days to combine king and priest would have been astounding in so many ways. He's not just any priest, but he's a priest of the Most High God. So the name priest as well to that image. So now here in Hebrews, we read that this Melchizedek has some parallels to Jesus. That's why he's being brought up after all. Now don't take this too far. It's not as if Melchizedek is Jesus. It's hard to think of such a spirit that way. Instead, what we see, verse 3, is that he resembles terms that I've used before, he's like the appetizer. He's anticipating something. He's, he's getting us ready. Have you ever had dessert? Have you ever had dessert? That would be Melchizedek is. He's presented without beginning. That sounds strange to us. It's not to say that he wasn't born and didn't die. No, that's point is just he's presented this way. He kind of just shows up on the scene. And if you think so many in the Old Testament, how is their importance established? By the genealogy. So-and-so is son of so-and-so, or, 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 or this and that, he is the, the, the father of so-and-so. That's why those genealogies are so important. Well, here, to have this guy show up, no genealogy at all, is, is awfully strange. And yet it makes a certain point. He teaches us something about Jesus that we need to know. And specifically, it's something about Christ the priest. Just as Melchizedek's priesthood did not have some sort of recorded beginning and ending, so it is for Christ, the priest. Jesus is our high priest. Not just, I don't just say that in the sense of, well, he, 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 he was, he did the work. No, I mean his, his priestly work for you and for me is to complete the work for us. Even now, he is interceding for us as God's priest. So Melchizedek gets us ready for a different kind of one that is not based on, on tabernacles and, and, and temples and, and, and holy rituals, but instead a priesthood that is even greater than any of those things. This is the sense of king here. Not like Aaron or his sons, but like the priest of Christ. 
suddenly being a mother or a father is is not just a burden in the right sense, but it's a burden in the sense of, well, you better be teaching this and feeding them that and and not be your most anything. It's too real to humanize. And so when we remove God from life, as our culture is so much trying to do, what you end up with is trying to replace all the things that only God can teach. Salvation now comes from getting your coffee from the right politically leaning place with the right cultural partners involved. Right? Genuine good health, suddenly it's all about you. You better eat the right things. You better exercise enough. Uh, no, no matter the fact that some of us genetically, no matter what you do, and certainly as you age, no matter what you do, health matters. You're not going to live forever with that condition. Culture, our world is in danger. Trusting in health care, education, politics, life path, or false gods can do nothing of what you and I need. Absolutely nothing. It's empty. It's dead. And yet suddenly, somehow, you make it look very fun to me and easy and fruitful. Not so much with the people of God now. No, the struggle is not just a modern day one, but it has been one ever since Adam and Eve sinned. And so now, here, the, the link that the author of Hebrews makes is that there's a comparison. Now, to you that points us to a better priesthood, one that is not the, the demanding legalisms of our world, one that does not demand that you, in every way, try to be perfect on your own and go through all the right rituals. No. Instead, you that points us to a priest who blesses you somehow figure out how to do it. Don't settle for anything less than the priesthood of Jesus. That will be terribly disappointing for us. Now, out of this one easily forgotten incident in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews was inspired to make a very different point. And we find that starting in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoil and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from the brothers though these also are descendants of Abraham but this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blesses him who has it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by fellow men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, that he would share in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. We've had who Melchizedek is. He is this priest king who resembles Christ in certain ways. Now we need to ask and answer, well, why does he matter? 
verses 4 to 6, we see why an angel comes to Melchizedek. And we think on that for a second. Abram, the, the, the hero of the faith, the, the patriarch of the nation of Israel. Abram, the one who just won this massive battle. The one who's called out um, in a few chapters, in Hebrews chapter 11, for his great faith. Yes, that Abram, you would think he would be the one to receive tithes, right? Shouldn't he be the one to get the trophies and the honors? And no, it says that he... The victor of the battle gives to Melchizedek, this seemingly unknown person. Why did he do that? Well, to help us realize how out of the ordinary this is, uh, our author, which gives us a little reminder, starting in verse 5, of how this system normally worked, right? The, uh, the descendants of Levi, that is to say the, the Old Testament priestly line, them from Levi, they're the ones who receive tithes and offerings from the rest of the Israelites. That's how the system worked. So of Abram's descendants, the Levites would get tithes from all the other tribes. That's how the Levites themselves were provided for. That's how the, uh, the tabernacle and then later the temple uh, was not just paid for, but that's how it was maintained. And then this was how the system worked. But here, here with Melchizedek, everything is turned around. Number one, he's not a Levite. He wasn't descended from Aaron. His priestly heritage is of a completely different species. He's a different kind of priest. Now with that information tucked away, we're ready to see why this matters. Abram gave tithes to Melchizedek because Abram recognized Abram the only reason that you would give a tithe to somebody. What's more, look at verse 6. Abram already had God's blessing. That happened way back earlier in Genesis. And yet Melchizedek recognized it. How can you bless someone? How can you improve on their situation if they already have the promises of God Almighty? But normally, so how can Melchizedek offer anything to Abram of value or worth? I mean, when you have been blessed by God himself, when you have promises from the Almighty, what else do you need? Yes, you need what Melchizedek also needs, the blessing of God Almighty. But if some way we could be part of God's promises being given to Abram, that would be a blessing to Melchizedek. That's exactly what happened. Friends, God's blessing, do you realize, is what every single person on this planet needs. It's what you need. It's what the person living in Africa without clean water needs. It's what a rich person in a Tokyo high-rise needs. It's what poor people in Chile Every single person needs to be blessed by the God of the universe. And only the Lord can provide that. Do you have God's blessing? Do you recognize and admit your need for 
because here's the good news. You can have it. And how? According to what Jesus says in Philippians 4. Where do you find that truth? Melchizedek's Was anyone named Melchizedek wandering around Israel in the three cities? Uh, wrong. Maybe there was someone with that name on the driver's license, but certainly it's not this priestly name. This priest. Look back to me, verse 3, and you'll find an objector there. You find the son of God. See, Melchizedek shows us the kings of the priests. Find the God man, the priest who has not captured. He is the priest without sin. He is the one who offers not the blood of bulls and goats, but instead his own body. Several others who make you new. And he does that for all who trust in him, all who trust in him. And you too can have blessing from the king of righteousness and the king of this is the ultimate Melchizedek king. It is through Jesus Christ. Let me make one more point before we start wrapping things up, and you'll find it in verses 7 and 8 of that setup, you might say, for what's coming in the rest of the chapter. The way that blessing works is that someone inferior is blessed by someone superior. Now, I know we just sang in, in one of our hymns where we speak of blessing the Lord, and, and that's true. That's enabled by, by Jesus. I'm not trying to undermine that at all, but that's not the sense that we're looking at here. In this case, the only way that someone can be blessed is if someone more powerful offers to them what they could never get for themselves. It's through blessing. And that's the lesson that we need to learn from Melchizedek. That's where the Genesis records that he offers Abram God's blessing. It's what every Christian has in Jesus. If you are a Christian today, do you realize that, that your hope is not rooted in some long-dead priest, but instead it's a blessing that is rooted in, founded in, In fact, as verses 9 to 10 teach, in this sense, even the priest of the Old Testament could be said to offer sacrifices. Not to themselves, but to Melchizedek. Abram is their forefather, and it's Abram who's offering a cattle. Does that make sense? Melchizedek then represents a priesthood far greater than any Because if you are a Christian, if you're, if you're someone who is trusting Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, then you have been and shall be forever will enjoy true, genuine blessing. A blessing not because of a, a nice job, a perfect family, a bank account, not anything that could ever change or be taken away, but a blessing that is rooted in God himself. One that's not about better health, more beautiful things, but instead it's about eternal rest, enjoying the personal care and glory of Jesus. Do you realize that this is the 
picture of who God is. This is his character. One of the things that I'm doing is I'm, I'm getting Isaiah. I'll be in Isaiah a little bit over the Advent season. Perhaps like some of you, I found that I just don't know that text as well as I should. And yet one of the things I'm astounded by is you open up to Isaiah chapter 1, and in some ways it starts with the bad news. God's people have rebelled against him. They have rejected him. They have sinned in every possible way. What they care about is not God's glory. They don't care about holiness to the Lord. No, they care about themselves. And you think, oh man, that's not going to show up. It's going to be a pretty ugly book, isn't it? But even in chapter 1, this is what astounds me. When the Lord responds, and he responds, that there will be judgment. But the judgment is not to destruction. The judgment is to purify his people. It is to make them holy. God's response is not, brothers and sisters, you are sinners and you have blown it and everyone's going to know it and you just have to deal with it forever. That's what our world offers. Have you noticed? If you've ever done anything wrong, it is held against you forever now. Don't have the right political beliefs about whatever the new hot button issue is? Guess what? You are condemned forever. And I'm not even joking. Have you ever run for any sort of public office that's going to get brought up? Oh, way back when, you believed about a condemns us in all kinds of ways, but the Lord responds. Even as in Isaiah, he calls his people to repent. He calls his people to turn to him again and again. Though he could condemn them, instead he invites them to repent. Friends, this is who God is. His mercy, his grace, it is beyond any category that we have in this world. Because it is so abundant. Do you realize that your salvation is not just you sneaking into kingdom? As if Christ is like, well, okay, we've got room for one more. Hey, you, eh, come on. Maybe you feel like that at times. But I guarantee you this, if you trust Christ as your Savior, if you receive him as your Lord, your entry into the kingdom will not be as, as one just sort of what it means to have a true Christian faith here in West Texas. And so I leave us with this. How will you rest in Christ, your Savior? How will you take his yoke upon you? How will you enter into this rest that Jesus has purchased for you? Who will you share with about the What Christianity offers is like no other philosophy or religion that you have to get it all right and make sure that you are perfect all the time, but instead it's a holy look to Christ 
room and then say, I don't have it all right, but he does. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you can't forgive me, if you need better forgiveness for our neighbors, our family, our friends, this world, serve our God because he is so good. Now let's just pray. Let's worship where we are. Heavenly Father, that you would bless us a lot to live in a remote place. Well, there's, we can get tithing to you. We understand giving something to someone greater than us, but we don't understand that common blessing to give thoughts to those that we have your presence with. That is a truth, that is a reality that is different from everything else in our lives. And so, Lord, our prayer is through the Spirit, that as long as you would produce in us truth born out of the one who has rescued us, that, that our peace is the one who has done the work